Welcome to another episode of the University of Washington's Thrivecast, the podcast designed to help School of Medicine faculty thrive. I'm Trish Critic, and today we're joined by Dr. Russ Megida. Dr. Megida is a clinical professor in the Department of Pediatrics, Division of Emergency Medicine, and he's the co-director of education for the UW Medicine Center for Scholarship and Patient Care Quality and Safety. And it's really for that second part that I invited him here today. Uh, he is one of our local experts on quality improvement. He teaches a lot about quality improvement. I've learned from him multiple times. And I thought it would be fun today, Russ, to, to have you here to start talking about, like, I'm kind of interested in QI. How do I go about jumping into that space? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Trish. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here and talk to you about this. And I'm excited to have you. So I think that we have many faculty who are clinicians and they're doing their clinical thing, and they notice like, huh, this is how we do this? Maybe we could do it better, or hmm, that was a near miss, and I wonder if there's a safer way to take care of our patients, or I'd love this to be more efficient because it would be nice to see more efficiency in the space where we're working. And they're kind of interested about working on making it better, but they don't even know kind of where to start. So if someone's in that kind of pre-contemplative phase, what would be your, your thoughts and your advice in that setting? Well, first off, I love clinicians who want to make things better. And uh, one of my favorite quotes is by Paul Batalden, who is the one of the founders of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. He said that everyone, when they come to work in healthcare, has two jobs. One is to take care of patients. And the other is to make that care better. And, and I think that that makes a difference for us and, and our patients and our staff uh, as we face burnout challenges right now. So the challenge, though, is that people know the work really well and want to make improvement, but don't really know how to go about doing it. And so people tend to want to solution jump and and say, well, I'm going to create a checklist or um, I'm going to set a timer for something and, and it will make things better. But I, I think that having some structure can make things better in terms of the likelihood of having a better outcome, but also in terms of acceptance from leaders and from staff. Yeah, I, I really like, I, I definitely know that I personally have been a person who wants a solution jump occasionally because it's like, let's just fix this. Must be like we could do this thing. But I think what I hear you saying is like there's steps to this and there's process that will make it more likely that the the change that maybe you're hoping for would actually be effective and and have the impact that that you might be looking for. And that you'll be able to show that it made a difference so that people, um, the people who are wondering whether it's, this was all worth it, you'll be able to show that it was or you'll be able to show that it didn't work. And so go back to the drawing board and and keep working on it. And this isn't new. And, and many of these processes are not plucked out of the blue. They've been developed over the past hundred years or so. And uh, there are techniques like lean and techniques like Six Sigma Mm -hmm. um, the challenges with those is, is that, and I'm a big believer in them, but the challenges with those are that it takes a lot of expertise and a lot of time to get expert at it. Mm -hmm. and, and the other challenge is we want, as healthcare providers, frontline clinicians, we want to be a part of making that change and not have someone from industry just pluck a solution off a shelf that works in a Boeing plant, but doesn't work in a busy ICU. Uh, so the technique that I like to teach is the Institute for Healthcare Improvements model for improvement because it's relatively simple, but it also is structured in a way that 
make sure that you take a comprehensive approach to uh, to trying to solve a problem. Okay, so I like I like simple and comprehensive. Those are that's a great combination. I also think, uh, you know, I'm familiar with it too. It's approachable, and I think the part that you said at the beginning, where it's like, it's great when clinicians are like, let's try to make things better. And then if you kind of have a, a lower lower barrier for entry into the process, I think it's more likely that that they will kind of be a part of the the group that's trying to move things forward. Um, Go ahead. Sorry, you were going to say no. That. Absolutely, and I, I think that uh, that setting people up for success is is important. Everyone's busy, and and we want people to be successful, and we don't want people to to have despair as they try to go about making changes and give up on it. Because that the only way we're going to get better is if all of the frontline experts are involved in making healthcare better. I appreciate that very much. Um, okay, so let's talk about the IHI model a little bit. So. I know we could probably have a very long podcast series on this. There probably are podcast series on this, but maybe you could hit the high points of what the, that structured approach is in, in, in the IHI model. Yeah, absolutely. It starts, one of the things I love about it is that it starts with three simple questions. And the first question is, what are we trying to achieve here? What's the change? What's the change and the improvement that we want to make? And then the second question is, if we make a change, how will we know that that change is an improvement? And then the third question is, well, what can we do to go about making that improvement and then do it over and over and over again in steps? And one of the reasons I like that first question is it helps center us. It, it helps prevent us from solution jumping. And, and it helps also with buy-in and making sure that we're all on the same page. It's very hard to argue that we want to decrease uh, central line associated bloodstream infections. Um, but it's there may be more argument about, you know, I want to make sure that everyone uses this element of the bundle or that element of the bundle. Yeah, so I, I appreciate that. So the first question is, what's the change that we're, we're striving for? And then I think the second question is really, important too, is like, how do we know we're actually making it better? And I think that's a really hard one a lot of times when I've been trying to do this. So do you have thoughts on that kind of question of measurement and how we get around like, or, or assessment? How do we, um, how do we dig into that one? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's one of the challenges for clinicians is, is getting that data. Uh, things are getting better. Yeah, I, I think that there are tools in Epic that we now have access to that still needs some work, but uh, but there's ways that we can start delving into that data. Um, but it, I, I think that the one of the challenges I see people have sometimes is trying to be too perfect or too comprehensive with the data. And so the first piece of advice I give people is hone things down to a single aim that you're trying to get at. That really gets at that first question of the model for improvement. And uh, I think many people know about smart aims and making sure that it's specific and measurable and achievable and time-based and relevant. And um, people who are trying to make these improvements really need to hone down that primary measure to a single thing. and maybe one process measure that you can look at depending on which particular part of the problem you're trying to address uh, and then one or two balancing measures but don't get too many try to avoid any measures that force you to dive into charts um, mm -hmm. or or do in-person uh, evaluation 
and uh, and try to make it automated if at all possible. So it's really trying to keep it simple. And uh, and sometimes we have to pick a proxy measure that's the best available proxy measure for what we're trying to achieve. Okay, so much there. So the first thing I heard was like when you're when you're setting your your goals, use smart and and focus on one aim. And I think that like don't fix the whole system in one initiative. Focus. And then I heard you say pick a few metrics, not a bazillion metrics. And if you can get them ones that you don't have to do any work to or minimal work to get them, that would be a a better way to go, even if it's not the perfect metric. Exactly. Each time. Yeah. I definitely have had that feeling of like the perfect thing we could measure is this. And we need a you know a team of 10 to achieve getting those data. So um I very much appreciate. You're, you're liberating me from feeling like I need to have that perfect uh, metric every time, but, but have a metric or have some metrics. Right. What else? So then you kind of get to like, what can we do? What are the challenges there? I, I can think of several, but what do you think <laughs> are the challenges there? I think first off is, is making sure, and this is particularly true if you have a quality improvement initiative that involves multiple departments or multiple disciplines. The first thing that I think is very important is establishing your scope, like what are your boundaries, and then making sure that the right people are at the table. Um, as faculty physicians, we have one point of view that we see uh, the patient mm-hmm. care or that any particular patient care problem. Um, but the nurses, the RTs, environmental services, central supply lab may have very different understandings of the process. And so getting those people into the room, either all at the same time or mapping it out and then shopping it around to them and validating that you have a good understanding of your current state. So I think really successful quality improvement starts with having a deep understanding of the current state and and having that understanding reflect the realities of all the people who are involved in, and also in particular, the patients and families. And uh, I think that many of the most successful QI initiatives have involved patients and families in this. I I would uh, 100% agree with you. And I would say I've learned that the hard way where I didn't have all the folks at the table who needed to be at the table at the start. Um, I really love the, I, you know, the concept of patients and families with us from the beginning of, of iterative change. Uh, one of the things I do now is when I think I've actually successfully gotten all the stakeholders at the table, say, who's not here? Who needs to be here? Who, who, who are we forgetting? And there's never a time that I've said that and that people have said, you got it right. Like, there's always somebody else that they're like, what about this voice? And so I, I very much appreciate that. And, and I think I heard you say from the start, maybe in different spaces, and maybe you create different ways of kind of hearing from different voices. But the other thing that I've had as a, a challenge when I things didn't go well from the, the QI work that I was doing where I was trying to lead is when I checked in with people kind of too far downstream after creating a plan. And, and then it didn't feel like they were at the table from the start and they didn't feel the same engagement. Right, right. And I, I think that before we even start making those plans, uh, really understanding your current state process is super important. And if you get the people involved, they're engaged from the beginning. And, uh, and also, if in the process of mapping the, that process out and understanding that process, you find the different disciplines say, oh, that's not exactly, that's not at all how it works, the way that you mapped it out. Uh, that tells you something. That tells you that there's either too much variability in that step or 
there's there's no standard way of doing it. And and if you're going to be successful at a quality improvement project, particularly as it relates to process improvement, uh, I think that you need to address that variability first before you can start diving into solutions. Because if everyone does it different, it's very hard to to create a solution to that problem. That's a um, great pearl. Yeah, I I think I appreciate that, and I think that's also that kind of not jumping to solution. What did you call it? Solution jumping? Yeah. I, I think that that mapping process happens way before you get to solution jumping. So that I, that's great. I think most clinicians, I mean, we're, we're fixers. You know, we, we <laughs> want to get in there. We want to do it. And um, as, as someone who has been in the leadership role in an operational area before, I, I, I love that. But I also worry that that solution is, is not going to be the entire fix for the problem. In most cases, problems are complex and they require a comprehensive solution. And so the next step after really understanding your current state and reducing the variability in that current state, that's when the fun begins. That's when you can get all the people at the table and and take your aim, take your what are we trying to accomplish here statement, and then start really trying to understand, well, why can't we get to that? Or what's getting in the way of that? What would facilitate us getting to that? And that one tool, the IHI model for improvement tool is the key driver diagram that I think that many people are getting more familiar with. Mm -hmm. And also if we're trying to publish QI uh, in many QI journals now, it's expected that you will have a key driver diagram. But that process is where you can start thinking, getting really creative and thinking about all the different ways that we can make that improvement. And that solution that you originally had, that you originally brought to the table, may be one of those elements, but you'll find that there's many other things that, that you're trying to, uh, that you need to do in order to, to be successful at your improvement project. I, I like that. I like the kind of generative kind of conversations that a key driver diagram helps you have. Um, for those of you who are listening, you can Google that right now so you can have a visual of what, what Russ is talking about. And that sounds like that, that's the, that if you're going to pick one thing about this model, that's the thing that you think helps the most as you move forward. Uh, with any complex QI project, I mean, there, there are going to be some that are just do it's where, you know, you just, you're trying to improve a discharge instruction or you know, you're creating a symbol order set. Those are just do it's, but anything that, that, that has multiple touches across disciplines or departments, I think it is important to try to be more comprehensive and this, and a key driver diet, that diagram gives you that structure. And the more that you do it, the more that you can start to derail those spinning conversations in a meeting that's trying to address the problem, pull everyone back to that first question, what are we trying to accomplish here? And, and then get consensus on that and then start laying out the key driver diagram on a whiteboard. And, uh, and hopefully that's how we get away from spinning that can often happen in meetings. Yep, I, I've been in those meetings. So I know this is more than you probably can explain quickly, but what is the what is how do you use a key driver diagram? Well, it really starts out with that with your aim. So honing down on what are we trying to accomplish, making it achievable, making the data relatively simple. And then primary drivers off of that are those, well, what are the big conceptual issues that uh, are, would facilitate us getting to where we want to get to or would remove barriers that are preventing us from getting there. 
So an example, a project that I'm working on right now is reducing time to pain medications for patients with sickle cell and vaso-occlusive episodes in the emergency department at Seattle Children's Hospital. Um, and we want to reduce that time. And when we start thinking about, well, what are the, the big picture, big conceptual barriers? Well, one is might be patient identification. How do we know that that patient has sickle cell disease? Another might be making sure that people prioritize this, that it, all the staff understand that this is a priority, mm -hmm. um, understanding and addressing any biases that may be associated with it. And then the third is, well, what, what are the functional things that we can do to make it so that we get those medications to the patient quicker? Um, and then when you take one of those primary drivers, those big conceptual things, those things in and of themselves aren't really actionable. Uh, but when you dive a little deeper, let's say it's the, how do we get medications to a patient quicker, well, you start thinking about things like, how can we prioritize or speed up vascular access? Mm -hmm. um, can we make the ordering process more simple for trainees? Can we get just-in-time training out there? Uh, is there are there non-parenteral routes that we can take to get medications to patients faster? Uh, is there anything we can do with pharmacy to flag these orders and make sure that they get approved faster? And so as you, those, those become secondary drivers or change ideas, and those all start looking like projects. Those also start looking like things that you can actually do. And then as a team, once you have all of these ideas out there, you start looking at, well, how do we sequence this? What do we do? How do we get started? Because it can feel overwhelming. And sometimes it's start with something really simple mm -hmm. and get away from the idea that we have to have everything perfect before we go live with something. Yeah. I, so, so many things there. Thank you. That was a really concise description of a complex concept. I, I like the primary drivers are those big picture things. And I like the example you gave because some of them were kind of really deep-seated systems things, and some of them are operational, and some are kind of educational or, or even like awareness. And, and then you go into those second dri secondary drivers where the, you now you're starting to sound like projects. I want to build on the last thing you said, which is, and it doesn't have to be perfect to start trying stuff out. So earlier, you also said this is iterative. So maybe you can comment on the kind of the, the difference between trying to make everything perfect and this approach where you're kind of testing stuff out, learning, and then adjusting. Right, right. The idea behind, in addition to the three questions for IHI model for improvement, the other idea is that you go back and you do iterative small tests of change. And with no apologies to Mark Zuckerberg, the, um, the idea, the Silicon Valley adage of move fast and break things doesn't always work in healthcare. So we have to be circumspect about how we do it, but we also don't want the attempt to be perfect to get in the way of gradual progress. And so the idea of a small test of change is take one of the, idea, the change ideas that have come off of your driver diagram and test it out. And one framework to think about you know, what is the scale of that test is involves three different ideas. One is, what is staff's readiness to accept that change? The second is, what is the risk of failure if we do this? And the third is, what is your expert degree of belief that this initiative will make a difference. Um, and when you take all three of those things, you can plot them out in the matrix. 
And, and if there's something that is high degree of belief that it'll work, staff are ready for it, low risk of failure, that's a just do it. That's low hanging fruit. Go in there and do it. But if it's high degree of belief that it'll work, but staff aren't ready and there's a high risk of failure, that's where you might do a very small test of change. That's where you might take some of the simulation expertise that we have uh, and do a sim. Or you might do a, a very small test of change with a single attending physician and a single charge nurse on one day in a clinic and just try it out and see if it works. Uh, and that's one way that you can, you can keep things moving forward while avoiding, avoiding perfection paralysis, but also avoiding the pitfalls of people saying, ah, that'll never work. And yeah. see, there's proof. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. It's kind of how to how to make it bite-sized chunks, but also then how to prioritize those bite-sized chunks and how you kind of keep things moving, continue to learn. Don't don't throw your all your eggs in one basket that might be high yield but has high risk. Uh, I think all of that's super helpful. All right, um, I know we could keep talking about this forever because I know you spend a lot of time talking about it. I I have spent a fair amount of my life doing this work too. So. Um, if you have one more big pearl, if you're going to say like, hey, I'm so excited that you're one of those people who's like seeing things and saying, how can I make this place better? And you want to, you know, kind of dive in. What would what would be like that kind of one last big pearl you'd share with people who are listening right now? Well, take advantage. There's there's a growing group of people within UW Medicine and, and across all the sites uh, of the UW School of Medicine um, that are getting trained in this. And so seek out your local expertise, the, your local mentors. Another route of trying to get this experience, we teach this as part of the UW Center for Scholarship and Patient Care Quality and Safety. We have a certificate program that is jointly sponsored by UW Medicine and Seattle Children's Hospital. We're in the middle of a year right now, but there'll be another cycle of applications in June. And if uh, you want to know more about that, uh, you can go to patientsafety.uw.edu. And there's information about that program, but also uh, on that website are many links to resources uh, for things like driver diagrams and how to do a process map and, and what are the key elements of a good aim statement. Uh, so there are a lot of resources out there. And the other great resources is the IHI. The IHI has an open school and, um, and many people have the opportunity to access that uh, for free as an educator or as a trainee. Uh, that was a concise list of resources. This was not designed as, as PR for the Center for Scholarship <laughs> and Patient Care Quality and Safety, but they have unbelievable resources. So check out their website, their certificate program. There's actually identifies a bunch of leaders in this space on the website too, I think. And, um, yeah. you know, start talking to people about this. It, it, I firm believer that each of us can help make the environment where we care for our patients and our families better. So um, I'm hoping that we get some converts to, to working on this uh, through your discussion today. You have shared so much in a short period of time. I really appreciate it. I hope that we whet people's appetites for more of this. And I just want to say a huge thank you for spending the time with me today and, and with all our listeners. Well, thank you, Trish. It has been wonderful speaking with you. And um, I am so happy to talk about this anytime. He said, you heard it here. He's happy to talk with you. So if you want to talk more, you could also just reach out to Russ. To listen to more episodes of Thrivecast, you can find them at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find them at the UW School of Medicine faculty website at faculty.uwmedicine.org. Thanks for listening. 
and I hope you have a great day.